Well, this morning, I want to invite you to get your Bibles now. We're going to jump into our sermon this morning. Again, if you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. And one of the things that we uh, practice here is we just allow the Word of God to speak. My job as a pastor is not to think, what do you need? My job as a pastor is to say, what does God determine that you need? And we allow the Word of God to speak. And it's amazing how He's constantly teaching us through His Word as we just allow it to be unpacked and revealed. So this morning, we're in Acts chapter 4. And I want to invite you to stand as we read. Um, Lauren Bassard is going to come, and she's going to read for us this morning, after which I'll pray, and we'll jump into the Word. Thanks, Lauren. Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Lord, we come to you again asking for your help. Lord, there are many things that might distract us this morning, Um, things that maybe are burdens on our heart or um, things we want to get to after church. But Lord, I ask that you would you would draw us in so that we can see you in your fullness and glory through your word. And Lord, what we, what we know not, would you teach us? Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, allow me as your messenger to be faithful and Lord, to proclaim your truth. And Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work through this, um, this wonderful uh, divine mechanism called the preaching of your word and impact our hearts, Lord, uh, to shape us and mold us to be what you want us to be. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the key issues of the Reformation are summarized with the five solas. You see them up there in English, up there in Latin, and, and really we can, we can state them in this way. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And grace alone stresses the initiative of God himself in salvation as the one who must change our hearts and give us the ability to exercise faith. The teaching of the Bible is that man left to himself will not choose to follow Christ. God must step in and grant man the ability to respond to the gospel by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9 the following. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The the gift of God is the faith that only God can give us. God's grace is unmerited favor, which he bestows on those whom he chooses. And that means, friends, that if you are a child of God today, your coming to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior was not simply your choice, It was God at work in you, awakening your heart to the gospel by his grace so that you would believe. Again, this is why John Newton, in in writing that, that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, and I'll say it again as I did earlier, he says the following, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Notice he didn't say, I once was lost, but I found my way out. 
He didn't say I was blind, but I figured out how I could see. No, Newton understood that the emphasis is on God's kindness in finding a lost sinner and giving sight to the spiritually blind. And so now grace alone, friends, doesn't mean that we're passive in the process. No, when God awakened your heart, you thought, you felt, you pondered, you considered, you were convicted, you listened, you grieved, you believed, you bowed, you rejoiced. We're not robots uninvolved. But because of the grace of God, we were responding, we were active in the process. But that was all part of God's drawing us to himself. And I think back on my conversion, that now looking back, I'm fully aware of times in my life where God was was dropping something for me to ponder and to consider. It could have been a conversation that I was having, maybe a sermon that I was reluctantly having to sit under, a reminder of what my parents taught me when I was a child, some inner taste about something that was going on in society, just wondering why is it that I feel this way about this? These were not present because I was pursuing God or that I was looking to follow him. He was the one who was making me aware of my sinfulness and the forgiveness that comes through Christ and his gospel. And so then one day when I was 16 years old, I bowed my heart in thankful submission to his glorious grace. It wasn't because I was looking for him, but he was busy looking for me. Now, although that is the teaching of scripture, much of the church has a distorted understanding of God's grace. And it usually falls into two extremes. We're going to talk about those two extremes briefly, and then we're going to kind of land on the biblical understanding of grace. The first extreme is hypergrace, also known as antinomianism. The idea of grace in many contexts has morphed to mean that God is a kind and loving God that just overlooks people's sins. God isn't concerned about their sinful behavior. God is only concerned that you love Jesus. This is what is often referred to as cheap grace or hyper grace, where the emphasis is only on God's love and forgiveness while practically ignoring Jesus' call for repentance and for his people to walk in wholehearted commitment to the Lord. And there are lots of churches, friends, you will walk into today who really are reluctant to even talk about sin or repentance or commitment to the Lord. As long as you love Jesus and you seek forgiveness, well, friends, you're going to have to cut out whole sections of the Bible to have that kind of view of grace. The other extreme would be earned grace, also known as legalism. For many religions around the world, this is how you appease or maintain favor with a divine being. You obey a set of rules and standards. You conform to the culture and expectations of the system, and you perform certain rituals faithfully and consistently. Or if you don't do those, you'll be excommunicated, ostracized, and lose out on the promised future blessing. And so even in the church, we find this kind of mentality being present. And with regard to the Reformation, those who were embracing the gospel revealed in the scriptures saw that the gospel being preached and taught by the Roman Catholic Church was grace plus works. Where God offers a person, uh, person uh, their conversion as an act of grace, but the individual must live a life in consistent bondage to certain rituals and commitments and behaviors. They must add to that grace to have the certainty of heaven. And so, friends, it was, it was nuanced, but it was a legalistic bondage system. And these rituals and commitments and behaviors were tied to the obedience and the authority of the church and its teaching, of course, apart from the scriptures. And that's why Luther and many others had great difficulty and were offended by the practice of indulgences. If you don't know what an indulgence is in the Catholic system, when the church wanted to build a cathedral, they would go out and they would say, we will sell you something, and it's called an indulgence, whereby those of your loved ones who have died and gone to purgatory. They're not in heaven yet. 
They're in purgatory. You can purchase their release from purgatory, and they can go into heaven. And I just want you to think about this. What kind of parent, what kind of son, what kind of sister would not want to get their loved one out of this horrible place called purgatory and into the wonderful place of heaven? The whole system, friends, was a religious scam. So instead of your car's warranty running out, buy more coverage. The church came to you and said, the warranty of the soul of your loved one is in jeopardy. You need to help. Same thing, friends. Bondage, fear, panic. If you do this, if you give us money, we can guarantee they'll be out of purgatory. How do you prove that? (laughs) How do you know? You can't. But if you speak against the church, you're in trouble. See, friends, this is a kind of spiritual manipulation that is an offense to God. It keeps people in bondage. It distorts the true nature of God's saving grace. And friends, I'm saying all this as kind of preparation for our text, but I want us to hear this. It's easy for us to drift into this earned grace or legalistic mindset. Even for those of us who identify with a robust reformed gospel, we can come into the church, we can come by faith to to be followers of Christ, but then drift back into this measurement of our growth and maturity based on the things that we do rather than what God says we are. So we set up these measurements of, of spiritual success or failure. I read my four chapters of the word today, so I'm still good. I prayed 30 minutes, so I'm still okay with God. He's pleased with me. I gave my tithe. They're contributed to the love offering. Whew, I'm still part of the faith. I attend a church and home group and Bible study. I invited a family from church home for lunch. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. God's going to be pleased with me now. I put together a box for Operation Christmas Child. Look, God, at all the things that I'm doing. You must still accept me, or at least I hope so. And friends, the the foolishness about that is we stop believing that we are already accepted. And we're trying to prove to God that we should be accepted. He's like, look, you're already here. Why are you trying to prove this to me? But what's confusing about all the things I mentioned is that they're all good. They're all right for followers to do as far as Disciplines, we need spiritual disciplines in our, not, in our life. The train runs off the track, however, when those disciplines are motivated, motivated by a sense of panic that if I don't do these things and don't do these things right, then God will not be pleased with me and I will have failed him. We will have fallen into the ditch when we believe that we have lost our place in God's family status unless all of these measurements are in the I'm good to go category. But the train we need to be on, friends, is the train of the authentic understanding of grace. True authentic grace that is taught in the scripture looks beyond man's sinful behavior and to the sinful condition of man's heart. That's why when Jesus comes, he says, I know what it was said. Right? But, but if, you, if you lust after a woman, where? In your heart. Jesus is always going for the heart. He's going for the sinful condition of man. He sees you and I as tainted with sin throughout our being, and that anything and everything you and I do, even the good things we might do, is tainted with our sin. In that sense, our sinfulness is the fruit of our sinful condition. So when Jesus comes and dies on the cross for our sin, he is cleansing and forgiving us, not simply for our sinful behavior, he is, but he is changing our sinful orientation, the orientation of our hearts. He moves us from death, bondage, and blindness to life, freedom, and sight. So friends, we need to understand this wonderful, beautiful Picture of grace. God's grace isn't just God's favor for salvation. It's also God's continued and ongoing favor for living our lives for his glory. Just consider what the Apostle Paul says to Titus. You know this passage well, Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. All right, so this is, 
This is the saving kind of grace. Verse 12, training us to announce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of uh, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. I want you to see that grace not only saves, but grace teaches or trains. Grace also hopes. And grace also purifies. So grace doesn't just speak of conversion. It speaks about our sanctification. And as we turn to our text, I want you to notice that what is emphasized is God's great grace at work in and through God's newly formed church. And what we have in these few verses is a wonderful picture of a grace-filled or a grace-driven church. And we're going to see three marks of a grace-filled church. This grace that saved them is now the grace that guides them. And I would want us as a church to see the beauty and wonder of God's glorious grace at work in and through his church, in particular through the local body of believers, how grace can and should be active and present in the life of of Gateway Bible Church. And again, in our, in our text here, we're going to see three marks of a grace-filled church. Grace for unity, grace for ministry, and grace for generosity. Let's jump in now, and let's think through now how grace helps us with unity. Look at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who, were, who, who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Now, this is grace for unity. You see this this kind of fledgling community of believers now beginning to recognize that they have a responsibility for one another. And one of the things we need to remember is that the unity of God's people has always been a precious thing to God. Just consider Psalm 133 and hear of its beauty. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's a beautiful thing, friends. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. You're like, I have no idea what that's talking about. And then it continues on and says, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. What, what, what the image here is of, is of um, Aaron, the high priest, having been anointed with oil. And, the, and the, the, the oil is just coming down his body all the way down. It's a picture of God's grace, which has its, its origin in heaven with God being poured out and then coming down and, and providing blessing. And you think then of of verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion. We could say it's it's like the snow in Yosemite that descends into the reservoirs, providing the resource and the cool refreshment that we can have with water. See, unity brings satisfaction and blessing. It starts high up with God and runs down to bring satisfaction and blessing. It's a beautiful thing, friends. And what we have here is this beautiful unity that comes as a result of God's grace among his people. First of all, I want you to notice there's here a community where people believe. In verse 32, we read, now the full number of those who believed. And just think about this, this expression, full number. Literally, it means, it means a multitude. What began with 120 people in an upper room as we have seen through Acts, has begun to grow from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000. And the question, of course, there is that just identifying how many men or is that all the people? If it's men, then we're talking about double the amount of people. So all of a sudden, we have five to 10,000 people gathered in Jerusalem in just the space of you know, a few days. And so the church continues to grow. As we mentioned last week, when the people of God are faithful to proclaim Jesus as both Lord and Christ, the church will continue to grow. 
And it's in this sense that these people are united. The grace of God in salvation has united these people through the gospel. Now, one of the confusions, friends, that we have in the broad tent of the body of Christ is the call for unity. But the scriptures teach us that unity is not something we create. Our unity is something that God created when he sent Jesus to die for our sins on the cross. What unites us is the gospel. What unites us is that we're all sinners who've been gloriously saved from the full brunt of our sinfulness, the wrath of God. And by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, as the sacrifice once for all, bearing the full born wrath of the Father and making the necessary payment for our sin, so we don't create unity, God has established it through what he did with his son on the cross, and we are called to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Sadly, most of the time, that we hear a call for unity in the church, it really, when you look at it, is ultimately a call for the evangelical church to abandon their commitment to clear commands and biblical distinctions taught by Christ and join the rest in unity. Well, you don't want to be ununited, do you? You don't want to be one of those sectarian people. We just want to unite. The problem is, if you unite together it all kind of gets swallowed up and, and ends up at the lowest common denominator. When the denominator is Christ and his gospel. My friends, this is not unity, this is uniformity. Unity descends from God to us. Uniformity is a horizontal attempt to squeeze people into getting along, even though they have little in common. And what grace does is it, it unites diverse people from various places through the gospel. And we just look around this room. People say, oh, look all the different kind of people you have in your church. I mean, different, you know, different ethnicities, different cultures. Well, it's California, but it's beautiful. And we are gathered here together from all our different cultures saying it is Christ that keeps us united. It's, it's his gospel that brings us together. We are one people. That's why if you ever have the privilege of traveling around the world, if you go someplace on vacation outside of this country, make it a point to go to church and step into the context of that church and realize, I know nothing about these people. They're in a different context. It's a different culture. But we are united by the gospel. And you walk in and there's a joy. And friends, it's a wonderful thing. And it's amazing. When we're united by God's grace as believers, it it really reflects what Titus 2 is talking about. It's a grace that continues to teach us, continues to impact us as the church. So this is the, the community where people believe. Secondly, thinking about this unity, there's a community where people belong it says in verse 2, they were one of one heart, and one, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With unity comes a sense of belonging. The gospel set them apart from the unbelieving Jews and knit them together through the gospel. And so those who are united by the gospel now maintain a responsibility of carefulness for the others who are in the community who are also God's children. And when people belong, they're united in heart and soul. They're united in practical matters. They're united to share their lives together. When people belong together, their hearts are open to freely share their lives and to share the resources with one another. We think about our text here. Who was sharing? It says, well, everyone shared. No one said that the things that belonged to him was his own. Now, don't, don't read this as... I know that um, so-and-so has a really, really nice Escalade, and I'm going to use that for vacation. This is not saying you have the right to go take something from someone. That's not what's going on here. But, but there was this sense of, of understanding someone's need and, and willing to share your resources to help other people's need. When did they share? All the time. Whenever anyone had a need, verse 34. 
And what did they share? Everything. And, and, and friends, you have to think about, here, here's this church, newly formed, trying to figure things out, and yet they are experiencing something that they maybe never experienced before, and that is the sense of community, the sense of responsibility, the sense of love for one another. What we have here is a wonderful picture of a community of people gathered together, working together, sharing their lives together in the strength and the power of God's grace. And as a church, friends, I want to commend you for the way you have all pulled together over the years to help others in our church and who are part of our family as they've gone through different things. I mean, just say, for for example, when meals are needed because one of our own has either faced a family crisis or is going through COVID or lost a job or is having a baby or enduring some long-term sickness, it's like, you know, boom, there it goes, and there's tons of food. And I think the people who are receiving are like, okay, we need to put the brakes on. We've got so much food in our refrigerator. Now, that's just one way we're doing it, but you guys are so good at doing that. I want to commend you for it. Or when there are problems that you're facing, fixing a leak in your faucet, looking to cut down some trees or shrubs, or considering refinancing or the purchase of a home, or just getting out of the hospital, needing to recover, or needing childcare for a special emergency or a special occasion. And the list goes on. You're always willing to adjust your schedules and to figure out, well, what can we do? How can we use our gifts to help the body of Christ? It's a beautiful Thing and it's evidence of unity and it's evidence of the grace of God at work in his body. Now, why is this all taking place? Because not only are you a believer who's attending Gateway, you're part of a com- the community of Gateway and you belong. Your church is your spiritual family. It's not just the place you attend on Sunday. Your church is your spiritual family. And in an age where people are hungering for significance and meaning, it's a wonderful comfort to know that you belong to that local body of Christ and that you count on other brothers and sisters to come alongside and help you in various situations. And friends, this is why church membership is so important. It says to the others who are part of Gateway Bible Church, I want to, be- I want to belong and I want to share my life with you. I want to partner with you to to help you grow in Christ, to raise your family, and to be present to help and support you as you have need. And I want you to do the same as I walk through that same journey together. The point of our text so far is to point to the fact that this newly formed community of believers is eager to care for its own by pooling their resources together and share what they had in order to meet a need. Grace for unity. Secondly, grace for ministry. Grace for ministry. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. What we see, first of all, here is grace for evangelistic ministry. I mean, this is what God had told them they were to do. So great grace produces great power for ministry. In verse 33, the the primary talking about ministry to the unbelieving world. This is the the witness that they were called to. The apostles were were witnessing and testifying. And certainly there were signs and wonders that were taking place, but the emphasis here was not on the signs and wonders. Remember, it's the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That was the point. That's the focus. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So when we open up our mouths with God's truth, friends, We become channels of God's grace so that his word flows through our lips to the hearts of those who are listening. It's not our eloquence. It's not our standing in society. It's not our gender or education or maturity in Christ that somehow enhances the proclamation of God's gospel. It is the word itself going forward in power that is the point. It is grace that works through us for God's glory. There's grace that is needed for ministry, and God gives grace for that. Secondly, is grace for community life ministry. We're told that grace was upon all. And it's good to be reminded what the Apostle Paul taught us in Romans 12. 
where he says, this is Romans 12, verses 3 through 6. We're familiar with 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, right? We're familiar with that, but we may be less familiar with verses 3 through 6. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he goes on to list a variety of spiritual gifts. And so, friends, what we have here is is this reality that God bestows on his children spiritual gifts that are also called graces that are given to us. And so we We are to use those spiritual gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. We become channels of God's grace when we are exercising our spiritual gifts for his glory. So your ability to minister to your brother and sister is a matter of God's grace. So when you get that that, that email that says, hey, so-and-so is in the hospital, and they're going to be getting out, and they're going to need some meals, and you're like, oh, man, I want to be a part of that. There can be a variety of reasons why you want to be a part of that. Hopefully it's not being that you feel manipulated or you feel guilty. Hopefully it's because you want to be a part of God's grace at work through your abilities, what God has given you, to benefit the body of Christ. So I want to encourage you to fan and to flame the spiritual gift or gifts that God has given you to minister to the body of Christ. God has graced you. He's bestowed favor on you with these spiritual gifts so that you can be a part of the equipping of the saints for ministry. And that happens in a variety of ways. This morning, we already have a bunch of people who are exercising their spiritual gifts for your benefit. Without them, even without your presence, we would not be able to have that mutually equipping going on. So fan into flame the gift of prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy, helps, and hospitality, just to name a few. And sometimes it takes testing the waters or asking those around you, what do you, what do you think my spiritual gift is? How do, you, how do you see that? How do you sense that? We want to help you discern that. We want to help you nurture it and grow it. So God's grace, uh, great grace is channeled through us in great power for his glory. I mean, just stop and think about that. God's grace is channeled through us. I mean, just think about that. His grace isn't functioning outside of us. It's functioning through us for his glory. You and I have the privilege of being channels of his grace. Are you ready to take that on? Because he gives grace for ministry. Third, grace for generosity. Grace for generosity. What we see next is an amazing grace-filled generosity within the body of Christ. And based on what we're reading, this generosity comes primarily from the wealthy converts, but not necessarily exclusively from them. In other words, I don't want you just to kind of say, well, I'm not wealthy, therefore this doesn't have to do with me. The reality is you're far wealthier than the people that were present there for the most part. Now, like any community, there would be those who are more needy than others. And so we read here, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed each or to each one as they, uh, as they had need. And so what we see here is that the atmosphere of this new Christian community is an eager and constant care for one another. A generous, giving spirit permeated the community. I mean, isn't, isn't that a beautiful thing? Now, what we have here is rooted in the Old Testament. I want you to make sure you, you kind of jot this down or you mark it in your Bible. In particular, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4. These verses are looking ahead to how the community was to live and behave in the promised land. And notice what the Lord says here. 
but there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess. See, when you get there, one of your goals is that there will not be anyone who is poor among you. This is part of the blessing of being God's community. The problem is they failed in many ways to not fulfill this reality. This was the ideal. This is what God was calling them to. And here, as the church begins, the same attitude that we find here in this Old Testament text is now present among God's people. There is no, there's to be no needy person among you. Now, the question we might need to ask here is this. What constitutes a need? I need a PlayStation. The latest one. You know, I need a, an iPhone. Or oh, what do you have? Well, I've got an iPhone 11, but I need a better one. We're not, we're not talking about those kinds of needs. And specifically, the text here is, is talking about the kind of needs that the poor in Jerusalem might be facing. So we're, the emphasis here is on those who are poor. And I would like to suggest that as the scriptures continue to develop and unfold, along with the spread of the gospel and the maturity of the church, that we can think of needs under three headings. And I, just, I got these more just from my reflection on the subject here, right? So first of all, I want you to consider what I'm calling generosity for essential needs. Essential needs. Sometimes generosity can come in the form of directly using our resources to help one another with the basic needs of life. Food, shelter, health, clothing, belonging. So no one went to bed hungry. No one sleeps in the street. No one went without clothes. Every believer knew that they belonged. The members took care of one another, and the wealthy even sold their lands and their houses to provide financial resources so that those needs could be met. Just, just think with me through 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 19, through 19. As for the rich, Paul says at this, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And he's speaking in a context where there was a huge disparity between the rich and the poor. And one of the historical blessings of the church as it continued to grow is that there were, there were those who were rich who embraced the gospel and saw their richness as the opportunity, and saw their wealth as an opportunity to benefit other brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think it's important that we realize here that there's not a, a demand here for them to sell their lands and give it to the church. They were not being looked down upon because they had wealth. In today's culture, you know, the 1%, they're the evil people, right? But we have even the 1% that are calling the 1% evil, right? It's just all crazy stuff going on right now. But here we have the church. And the wealthy in the church that are stirred up to, to, to be concerned about the needs of other brothers and sisters in Christ who are poor. They're not told to sell all they had and give it to the poor. No, they gave it voluntarily and with discretion. Now, some come to this passage and they say, aha, it's here that we have the seeds of communism. If you remember Karl Marx, his slogan was, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And it sounds very much like what we have in Scripture and what's going on here. It sounds like what Acts 11.29 says when, when we're told here, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. I mean, it sounds like the seeds of communism are here, but here, friends, we need to understand this. There's two basic answers that put that thought to bed. 
first of all, people still owned property. They weren't somehow, you know, their property wasn't taken from them and then used to help the people. They owned property. Verse 34 and verse 37 tell us that. They owned fields and houses. And those fields and houses were at their disposal to do with as they saw fit. No rich person was being compelled or manipulated or having a guilt trip thrown on them to sell their land to meet the needs of the poor. Secondly, people were not under any obligation to sell and give. They were not forced or coerced to sell their lands. They gave voluntarily and with discretion. Acts 5.4, which we'll see next week. This is the negative example that we see in Ananias and Sapphira, what they did. They sold a piece of property and they withheld a portion of it, but presented as if they were giving the whole of the sale to the apostles. Right? And this is what, this is what Peter says in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? I mean, you didn't have to sell it. You chose to do this. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, you could have held back a portion of it. That would be fine. The issue wasn't that you gave it all to the church, but you wanted to present yourself as giving it all to the church. Now, we read back then into what's happening here by saying, look, No rich person was forced to give their property. No rich person had their lands and their houses stripped away from them for the common good. So friends, there's no hint at anything like communism here. It is the wealthy that have been moved to give out of their love for the body of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. And if you're someone here that happens to be in our church who is wealthy, I would just ask you, you know what? Be sensitive to the needs of the flock And give graciously as God would direct you. And by the way, when I say the wealthy in this church, I'm pretty much talking about all of you here. If, you know, if the poverty level, they said in San Francisco was 117,000 a few years ago, I think we are all kind of in good shape because that's not what I would consider poverty. Side note, back to the text. Generosity for essential needs. Secondly, generosity for practical needs. Now, I don't think this is specifically in the text, but I think as we step back and we look at our context, in today's culture, the needs in the body of Christ may not be for food or shelter or clothing, although sometimes that is true, but they may be other more practical things that you can be generous to help with. There have been times in, in my life when I've had problems with my cars. It won't start. The transmission seems to be slipping. There's a noise that I can't detect. There's a grogginess in the engine. You probably had the same things happening. And I could just call a towing company. At times I've done that. But at other times I've said, you know what? I know someone in the church who is mechanically inclined and understands cars. And, and maybe if they come and they can just look at it, they can... They can give me some assessment, and then if I need to call the towing company, I can do that. And so they come, and they look at my car, and and on some occasions, this has happened a number of times, it took them less than five minutes to solve the problem. A fuse had blown. A switch had been turned off under the dash. That was the most embarrassing one. My Toyota, it's like, I won't start, it won't start. And it's like, there's a little switch under the dash. You probably don't know about it. It's like, now it'll start. It was just kind of a security thing. It's like, okay, thank you for that. Well, I'm glad I didn't call a towing company. My radiator fluid simply needed to be topped up so that my my transmission would continue to work. And they gave me advice at times so that when I did take it to the dealership or the mechanic, I would have a little more awareness of what was going on. Their generous time and wisdom were such a blessing to me. And friends, this this is what we're talking about here when we talk about the generosity for practical needs. Some of us need help to set up our computers or to put apps on our iPads or iPhones. And we're so thankful for someone to come alongside us and show us not only how to access them, but to how to keep it working. And many people just need help with things like budgeting, or maybe they need their house cleaned, or 
Others need counsel on how to put together a resume, or maybe they're looking to remodel a bathroom or fix the yard or fix the fence, and they just want someone that they can trust to give them wisdom and advice so that they know what to do. They're not asking them to do it necessarily. They just want, they want someone they can trust. And the body of Christ can come along and help. And so, friends, God calls us as the body of Christ to be generous in practical ways for one another. And we can be generous in, in the following ways. They just thought of maybe five things that kind of help us here. We can be generous with our resources. We have things. I have things in my garage right now from a couple of different people that are resources to help me do some things I need to do. I still haven't figured out how to use them, but at least I have them in my, in my garage so that I can use them, right? Some resources, just wisdom. Other people have gone through things. Other people might be skilled in certain areas that can say, oh, no, no, you're, you're not doing this right. You need to do X, Y, and Z. Our time, just giving up your time, your friendship. You're meeting people, so you can be generous with your friendship, with your connections. Maybe you know someone that knows someone that can help you with the particular thing you're going through. Again, this is how we all kind of working together. We call that networking together. This is what's called being the body of Christ. So we have generosity for essential needs, generosity for practical needs. There's a final category here, generosity for spiritual needs. At other times, we can be generous to help a brother or sister with, a, with issues of, of a spiritual nature, sitting and listening to them share their struggle, praying with them and assuring them that we will walk with them on their journey. Sometimes we'll be called upon to give advice, and that will not only take time and wisdom and energy while we're with them. But as we leave with the promise of returning, we're going home and we're taking their burden and we're pondering over it. We're studying God's word. We're thinking things out because we want to come back and help them some more. So it's just taking all these things and putting it together. We come back and to give them counsel from the Bible. And for others, it will be questions that they have about their spiritual walk, some simple struggles they may be facing, some relationship issues, and God is asking you to be generous to meet their need. There is not a needy person among them. I want to challenge you as a church. Is that true of us? Are we quick to jump in and lean in to help one another as a family, as a spiritual family. And then this passage finishes with this wonderful example. And of course, this is an example, it's a positive example. We're going to look at the negative example with Ananias and Sapphira, but we have this wonderful example of what generosity looks like in the life of one individual. It says in verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I just want you to notice, first of all, that Joseph is his name, but Barnabas is his nickname. And from this point on in the book of Acts, he's Barnabas, he's Barnabas, he's Barnabas, he's Barnabas. He's the son of of encouragement. Let me ask you a question. If mature believers were to look at your life and give you a nickname based on your life and character, what it would what would it be? Son of anger, daughter of anxiety, son of laziness, daughter of gossip, son of loyalty, daughter of thoughtfulness. Son of humble service, daughter of quiet prayer. What would it be? There's a legacy going on with why he's called what he's called. And Barnabas is going to show up, as I said, many times through the book of Acts. And he's one who continues to to be a part of spreading the gospel to the end of the earth. And he's mentioned as one who invested in the lives of believers and had a, a good eye and a glad heart, who encouraged believers to be faithful, who was humble and trustworthy and patient with others. But in this passage, Luke wants us to see that Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he is the son of encouragement through his great generosity. 
Now notice four characteristics we see in this example of Barnabas. The first one is compassion, right? He, he, he sees that there are needs in the body of Christ, and he's moved by those needs to, to do something, to sell his property in particular field. Secondly, there's generosity. He's, he's willing to sell his fields. Now notice in the text it talks about fields, plural, and houses, plural. Not so much for him, but just saying as it's talking about this, this whole practice. Because there were basically two groups. For the most part, people were poor. Then you had this upper echelon. The best estimates are about 8% of the people who were landowners and who had houses, plural. Okay? And he is compassionate for the needs of the church. He is generous to say, I've got a field, I can sell it, and I can be an encouragement to the body of Christ by the resources that that field will bring. Humility. Barnabas wasn't making a big show. He wasn't coming and saying, I just sold a field. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm going to sell my house next week if you want to come and see me. No, it wasn't that at all. It's very humble. He was there to meet the needs of the body. And then submission. He was letting the apostles be the ones who would determine how it was to be used. Now, as a pastor, I've been in a context where people have come and, you know, rich people have come and said, we want to give this money to the church. And like, you know, it's like, here's the money we want to give. But we want it to go here. And they're like, well, it doesn't work that way. Um, I understand your heart and what your desire is. If, as leadership, we determine that's where the money is best used for the glory of God, then we'll use it that way. See, being generous doesn't mean having coercion that comes with the generosity, having manipulation that comes with having selfish desires here. It says, no, I'm going to submit to, in this case, it was the apostles in the context of the church. It would be those who are put in that place of responsibility to determine how those things should be used. So grace for generosity. So we've seen grace for unity, grace for ministry, and grace for generosity. Now, as we come to our concluding thoughts, I have three questions I want to quickly mention and answer and then two challenges. So three questions, first of all. And you might be thinking about these as I've been talking about this. right? Question number one, am I responsible to help everyone outside the church or just those inside the church? It's a great question, isn't it? And it's probably a question that has been bouncing around in your head. Well, first I want to draw your attention to verse 32 in our text where we're told that they, they the full number of those who believed, had everything in common. In other words, what's going on here is specifically about those who were new believers, who were believers who were part of this community. So what this passage is talking about is taking care of those who are believers and who belong to the church. It doesn't say that these 5,000 or so believers were now responsible for taking care of the needs of all the poor in Jerusalem. They couldn't do that. But they could take care of the needs of their own so in our context, that would mean that your first priority to those who, is to those who are part of Gateway, your church. And friends, again, this is a reminder why church membership is necessary, to know who belongs, to know who has partnered together, to know these are the people that we are working and doing life with and we're gathered together for God's glory with. It's not this kind of nebulous thing, well, I kind of go here and I float over there and I float here. And No, God doesn't want you to float. He wants you to land. And this is where the church and its membership is really important here, right? Because we as a church leadership and as a church family want to make sure that we're caring for our own. But if we don't know who our own are, people aren't willing to say, hey, this is my church. We want to be under the leadership of this church. We want these people to take care of us. Then you're kind of at a loss to what you can do. Now, certainly you can be gracious beyond that, but our first priority is going to be to those who are part of our own spiritual community. Now consider the words of Paul to the Galatian church, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. We should be kind to everyone. You don't stand in line and say, well, are you part of my church? Get out of the way, you're not part of my church. No, no you're kind to everyone, right? But, but notice what he says, and especially to those of the household of faith. God has put them to be 
the, the source of your prayers, the source of your resources, the source of your care. So the first place you are to look to be channels of grace-filled generosity is to your own church family. So get to know your church family. Pray for your church family. Consider how you can be generous to your church family. Secondly, second question, very similar but a little different. Am I responsible for the needs of people all over the world? You've seen those commercials on TV. I think as I get older and the channels that I tend to watch, you know, more documentaries and stuff like that, right? They know who's watching. And, you know, there's some, some emaciated child that comes up, you know, and they're wanting you to give and stuff like that. And it's all true and it's sad. And it's like with Internet and stuff like that, we just see things happening all over the world. We couldn't stop giving. So, so what do we do with all this? It seems very, very overwhelming, and we don't want to be cold toward people's needs. But Scripture gives us some direction here. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, talks about and it reveals to us this, this situation where the church in Antioch was sending resources to the believers in Judea because they were experiencing famine. And they gave as they determined freely and according to their ability to help the brothers and sisters living in Judea. So there was one region helping another region, but we're talking here about the churches helping those particular people. 2 Corinthians 8, we have this wonderful section about the generosity of the Macedonian church. And what's unique about them is that they were going through their own struggles themselves. And yet, they were wanting to provide a generous offering for those who were suffering and those who were needy, even out of their poverty, they were begging Paul to have the privilege to bring relief to those who were suffering. It's just a wonderful attitude of saying, look, our needs aren't just our church. Our needs go beyond that, but there still needs to be some mechanisms of control so that those resources can be used effectively. You know, I was talking to someone who, um, who was a missionary in another country another region of the world. And he says, when, what people don't realize is that when money comes to the United States, into our region, it comes in and it goes to the first place. And that first place takes a little cut of it. It sends it off to the regional place. The regional place takes a little cut of it. It goes down to the, the more local place. The local leaders then take a cut of it. And by the time you actually get to the people you're trying to help, there's maybe about 10% left. And in that context, in that culture, this is seen as normal. This is how we survive. Now, friends, that's not what we want to see. <laughs> we want our resources to be able to go to help particular needs in particular places. And so that's why one of the things that's really helpful here is that we develop relationships with people in other places around the world, like Ukraine or Bolivia in particular. And if there are needs that we can provide for, we allow them to be the ones who have the wisdom and the discernment to know what to do and how to distribute it. And also to be accountable to us to show us, hey, this is how we used it. And as a reminder, we have for a number of years sent care packages to Ukraine, in particular to go to the men's rehab center. And there's a video that's floating around if it's on our website or not, but it's just a beautiful, wonderful uh, kind of reception of how they, how are, they unpacked our, those boxes that we sent. And I just were so thankful and joyful for the way in which our church has been generous to reach them. Now, we can't do it all. That's the point. You know, we've got to evangelize the world. Well, you've got to start, you know, little bites and say, we're, we're doing it here, we're doing it here. We're helping these people now to do it here. As our church, we have a role, we have our place. We're not trying to do it all. And so we, we allow ourselves the wisdom to function within these parameters. Now, you have the freedom to function outside of that to some degree, but I would encourage you to, to allow some of your generosity and a good portion of that to go through what we have set up as a church. I love what um, Kevin DeYoung has said. I read his book a number of years ago, and he talked about um, the principle of moral proximity. This is really helpful, not only for evangelism, but even for this kind of grace-based generosity. And basically, the, 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 the concept of moral proximity says the closer someone is to you geographically or relationally, the more obligation you have to care for them. In other words, you have more responsibility to care for that coworker at work than you do for, you know, Sammy, who lives in, in I don't know, um, 
let's say, in Istanbul. You don't know Sammy, but you know the guy who's sitting across from you. Why? You're, you are responsible. You have a moral responsibility by those who are close to you geographically and relationally. Now, you know, I've used this illustration before. Some of you may or may not understand this, but some people who go jogging, of which I am not one of them, but I know there are apps out there, but you, you can track the path where you go jogging. And there's just like this yellow kind of marker, like a highlight marker. We went down this street, went this street, and it tells you the mileage and all that kind of stuff. And, and our lives are like that. Where, where we go becomes our moral proximity. God has placed us here in the Bay Area, in particular here in San Lorenzo, Castro Valley area. And this is the proximity where God expects us then to carry out our responsibility to help others that are not part of the church. Okay? So be generous with your family, with your church, with your coworkers, your neighbors, relationships. You're working out, and that's, that's how ultimately it functions. Number three, last question. Won't people take advantage of my generosity? Now, as a pastor, I have seen this before where people are, you know, they're coming with handouts and then they'll come to this church and they'll go to another church. There's that kind of stuff that happens. And so there's some things that we need to think through. Now, shouldn't there be some rules, guidelines to stop people from taking advantage of our generosity? Again, that's a great question and a question that the scriptures will answer for us. I would say this, we want to be careful that rules and guidelines do not hinder us from having a spirit of generosity. But with that spirit of generosity, as the church grew and as it developed, there were things that happened that kind of began to kind of refine who actually would be the recipients of this. So in Acts 6, if you remember, there was a conflict between the care of the widows and they needed some deacons who could come alongside and sort it all out. That's why they ultimately chose some deacons. They were there to, to, to establish the guidelines for what would, what would happen and who would actually be the recipients of this. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 takes time to define who a widow is and who a widow isn't. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that there are some, as the church developed, there were these guidelines, there were these kind of uh, markers to say, well, this person deserves it, this person, their family can take care of them. This person is a widow indeed. She has absolutely no one to care for her. So we're going to come alongside her. We're going to help her. We're going to make sure that we're providing resources for her. But I think probably the most compelling qualifier of this third question is found in um, the book of 2 Thessalonians. There were people who were so convinced, rightly so, that the Lord was going to return. But they were like, he's going to come any day now. So they stopped working. And the Apostle Paul calls them, calls their behavior basically leading an undisciplined life and acting like busybodies. And he says quite famously, if anyone will not work, neither let him what? Eat. That's a pretty hard thing. And he's saying, look, if you're able-bodied and you can work, then get up and work. Contribute. We're not just going to take care of you all the time, right? Um, because you're not following through with your responsibility. So the one who is looking to be generous needs to be wise, needs to seek counsel and to get confirmation that a need truly exists. Now, those are three questions, two challenges. I don't think they're up on there. Number one, simply get to know your church family. You're not going to know the needs of the church, and the church is not going to know the needs of the church unless the church is connecting with one another. Some people are reluctant to share their needs, but spending time with them will reveal them. Secondly, Learn to exercise a grace-filled generosity as you see the need arise. Pray for God to give you a wise, grace-filled generosity for the needs of those who are part of the body of Christ. You might be on the receiving end of it someday. That's not the only motivation, but it's a reality. So, Allow the grace or the great grace that you have received through Christ to overflow in a great generosity that meets the needs of other believers who, are, who, who belong so that the ministry of the word can continue to go forward in great power. Great grace, great generosity, great power. Grace 
heaped upon grace, heaped upon grace. That's what God is calling us to as a church. Lord, help us today. We have marinated in your text. And Lord, this is a tough one. Because you are messing around with things that are our possessions. Things that we hold dear. Things that we value. But Lord, may we rise above our stuff. And may we see that the gifts that not only you have given us, but even the prospect of what we have in store for us is far greater than anything that this world has to offer. And Lord, that doesn't mean that we're just foolish and we just give everything away. You're not calling us to do that. But you are calling us to have compassionate hearts that are are willing and, and eager to hear of the needs of your people. And Lord, if that means selling something we have or pulling some money out of the bank and and just lovingly and joyfully giving it to help meet a need, give us hearts, Lord, that are willing to do that. Help us to be wise, maybe even seek counsel for what we're doing. But Lord, may we cultivate and continue, Lord, just to be a church that is gracious and that we will be the channel of your grace to our own people first and then those who are outside of our church for your glory we ask in your precious name amen